Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com for more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. And thank you, Robin Collier, for, for running KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico. I really do appreciate it. And if you've been listening to this show over the years, you know that I sometimes have folks on that I've known for years. And other times, I just invite somebody that I don't even know and get to know that person on on the call, on the, on the interview. And so today I have such an opportunity. Her name is her name is Siobhan Doherty, and I came across her online. She is a creativity teacher. She bases her creativity work in the artist way, which is something that she and I have in common because I do the same thing as well. She's also in the theater business, in the acting business, and she's in the teaching business on multiple levels. There are many things I suspect she does. She has a pretty good resume. I, I checked it out before we connected. So I'm anxious to find out more about Siobhan. So Siobhan, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hi, I'm I'm glad to be here. So often in life, we bump into things online or turn the corner and bump into somebody that we haven't seen in a long time or that we don't know, but they give us some insight. In the artist way work, that's called synchronicity. It's called mm. good luck. It's called happenstance. You and I connected because of, of that synchronistic moment I had online when I was on the Artist Way page uh, run by Jeremiah Hill and saw your ad for an Artist Way workshop or Artist Way something. And I was I was intrigued by the colors. So I was like, I'm going to find out more about this person. So I clicked on you and discovered you were in the acting business and other things as well. So would you begin this conversation by reflecting on the value of synchronicity and when you first started to notice it was at play in your work as a creative? That is an interesting question. Well, it's very present for me right now in my life. I, I moved to Providence, Rhode Island from the Bay Area. And I moved in part because I realized that I had become a little bit closed off. I, I felt like I knew what was there. I knew the people I knew. And I realized that I had some fixed ideas. And, and I felt like part of what I needed in life was a chance to break that apart. So I moved to Providence, Rhode Island with hardly knowing anyone, <laughs> which was a little bit terrifying. And then promptly, you know, winter approached and COVID is here. And what I have been learning in that process, though, is that the human connections that we make and those threads that we follow are, are truly what, what keeps us going by being in that, in that really sort of maybe terror filled place where I'm like, Oh my God, what have I done? It's dark. It's winter. <laughs> I can't, I can't do this. I would make some connections and then those connections would know other people. And then I would start to follow the thread. And pretty soon I had, 
I have now, after a year, met a community of people, but I've realized the the deep, deep value of those kinds of connections, the way we really keep each other going as human beings. So what would be some synchronistic story you could tell around entering the, the Providence, Rhode Island community, which I do understand is a very rich, creative community, you have Brown University there? And, yeah. and many poets, and you're in between New York City and Boston. It's that creative northeastern corridor that you are are involved in. Yeah, it is. I have a story that I may perhaps regret telling. I don't know, but I was looking for housing out here, and I was feeling so desperate because it was hard to find a place that would take a dog. It was more expensive than I thought. So I was just feeling like completely overwhelmed. Like, what have I done? And I ended up looking for someplace to stay besides a hotel because there was no Airbnbs available. And I saw this campground that was a nudist campground <laughs> out on the outskirts of Providence or like, you know, about 20 minutes away. And and that's not normally my, my scene, but the reviews were so delightful. There was like, what a fabulous community this is and, and everybody's so friendly. So I said, you know what, why not? I'm on this adventure and I'm just going to park myself here for a week. I was feeling a little bit dispirited. In that campground, I met someone who told me about his his partner who was an artist um, in Providence. And she uh, was a connector type. You know, those types of people who just connect to everyone. And so she sort of took me under her wing and connected me to many people. She's so fabulous. She wears like 10,000 colors all the time and she makes jewelry and she's she's now going to grad school at RISD. And it just really struck me that I felt like I had just given up and was in this very bizarre situation. And then out of that bizarre situation, um, I met this woman who's been so instrumental into having me meet wonderful artists out here. And I, I, I think that that story kind of has taught me that it doesn't always come from where you expect it to come from. <laughs> Those types of meetings, <clears throat> you can try to arrange it and go to the places that you think you should be. But then sometimes you just really can't plan it or control it. Being nude... Hopefully it was a summer experience. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was thinking if you had a, if you were going to advertise your nude camping, you would say, "All you need's a tent." Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Being nude in the sense of now I'm going to remove all my layers and I'm just going to stand before you myself, with or without the clothes on, yeah. really sets a, a more fertile environment for the opportunity for us to notice the synchronicity that's around us. I've often thought synchronicity is not something that is unusual. It's in fact going on all the time. What we are often overlook is that we're not able to notice it because we're so busy looking at our shoelaces or whatever it is we're observing. And so you go to the, go to the campground, you take all, all <laughs> your, your resistance right. off you remove your resistance and then you meet the colorful woman ironically the woman at the nude campground wears a lot of layers of colorful clothing <laughs> yes 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 and she and she has been just such a dear dear friend that was a new situation for me being in providence is a new situation for me so when i meet people now i i come from this spirit of i wonder how this connection will unfold versus Oh, I know who this is. 
or I know what this is. It's a lot more of being in a place of wonder, which I think is really important for any kind of creativity to happen. When you have a fixed idea, then you're kind of dead in the water. But when you can allow yourself to wonder how something will unfold, there's a little wiggle room there. Yeah. And then, of course, curiosity and imagination and all those other creative things follow with that sense of wonder. That's where the childlike part comes in. I often chuckle when I hear people who are adults say, I'm never going to grow up. I'm always going to be a child. And I say, have you looked at the mirror lately? You're a full grown adult. But we can keep that wondrous childlike sensibility bubbling inside of us all the time. The work that you do creatively, I don't know everything about it. In fact, I don't know that much about it at all. But I do know that you have made a living doing the creative work on lots of different levels. So I would like for you to reflect on that a a bit, because a lot of people who listen to this show in Asheville and Taos and online, I've been told, they tell me if I bump into them in the street, that they're doing creative work too. So if you could give some insight in how you have managed to create momentum for yourself as a creative person in the world of business and arts and acting and theater and all that other stuff. I'd love to hear that story. Sure. I mean, I I think sort of like anyone, I got into into theater because of a, a passion, right? Like it, it brought me to life um, in a way that nothing else had ever brought me to life. I have had many fantastic experiences with being in shows and developing relationships with casts and and feeling that warmth. But it did involve a lot of hustling, of having to wear other kinds of hats. And at a certain point, that that can be very exhausting. I mean, it's just a fact that like we only have so much bandwidth and it can be a little bit exhausting. So one of the things that I've been shifting for myself is how can I create more well-being in the midst of of all of that? What I have started to do now is move into creativity coaching. The creativity coaching is a way to sort of help creative people move through those spaces and identify, are they getting their needs met? If not, how can they get their needs met? Helping them with sorting out how it looks for them. Because for me, for many years, that's what I did is I I relied on it for my bread and butter. But I, I think that now I'm kind of shifting into making space for something else. So when you say creativity coaching, tell us more about how you frame that in your own thinking. I suspect you and I have a fair amount in common I sometimes will say I'm a, I'm a creativity coach and, and you know, I'll say that because people will come to me and say, can you help me with this or that? And I'm like, sure. When right. someone comes to you for creativity coaching, yeah. what do you do? How do you do it? <laughs> so the kind of coaching that I'm learning is a holistic approach. So you can talk really about anything at all um, since it's all related and it's a reflective inquiry where I trust that you have the answers. I'm a thinking partner with you and a container for anything that you might need to move through your system and process around making art. 
grief or fear or any of those things. So it is a way to identify where you want to go, but it is also a way to kind of look at the beliefs that are coming up, much like the artist's way does, where you really look at those foundational beliefs that are blocking you and you you kind of gently work with them to to make a little bit of forward motion in in that department what would be a foundational belief that blocked you and then using your own personal work and creative coaching for yourself yeah. the, the blocking foundational belief became a foundational asset that moved you forward I have had so many limiting beliefs, which I think is why I want to get into this work. You know, you kind of teach the thing that you need oftentimes. And I would say that one of the beliefs I've had is that my self-worth is is directly tied to my art and, and how good my art is. And, and that is a very dangerous belief to have. Again, kind of sucks the joy out of out of what you're making when your entire self-worth depends on how well you do or that sort of thing. You think that these limiting beliefs that we have, which are beliefs, and a belief is an interesting thing because really, you really have a very difficult time proving it. Now, you could have a hypothesis and say, you know, if I drop this stone, will it fall to the ground? And you drop the stone and it falls to the ground. You go, well, today it hit the ground. Likely it will do so tomorrow. So that hypothesis would be true. I'm going to drop the stone. It's going to hit the ground. But uh, beliefs are not quite like that. They're hard to prove. Do you think that the limiting beliefs that a lot of people have, not just you, not, not the beliefs that I have, but we all have, how many of those limiting beliefs are actually true? Well, you can answer that a couple of ways. I mean, the limiting beliefs that you have can be true if if you make them true. If you reinforce them, they become true. But they are not set in stone. They do not need to be that way. And, and that's where this work comes in of, of practicing what if something else were true and really just gently practicing that and showing up for it. One of the things that really helped me was doing some healing work where I was able to access a sense of self-worth and well-being like externally from the art that I was making. And I noticed that, ah, when I am building that, it helps me create. And, and so that has been a really useful thing for me to do. People use the term good often, and I hear it all the time. Am, am I a good writer? Am I a good at this? I use it too. I want my work to be good. I wonder how you identify good. When does it rise to that level that you can approve of as good? And how valuable... Do you think all of the bad stuff that you have to do in order to get to the good, how much value lies in the bad stuff that you do to get to that good? Oh my gosh, so much value. <laughs> I, I, I'm such a big believer that the more I do, the more I realize that process, I would say it matters more than, than the final product really, because when you have a process of 
as you're making something, if you are able to, you know, relax into it, enjoy it, get something out of it, then you got something out of it. And, and you don't need to be so concerned about like how it all turned out. You, you got something every step of the way and, and just making it is worthwhile in and of itself. Just showing up um, is a success. And so when you can redefine your idea of success, your art making starts to shift. That's really hard for someone who might be a perfectionist to hear, who doesn't want to go through things looking ugly or things, you know, not, not quite being right. I think it's really necessary to go through those stages and ask yourself, how am I defining success? And what is this teaching me? Success is a very potent word. In American culture, of course, success means I'm going to make my career. I'll be very successful. It's often measured externally with what you own, what you have, how big your bank account is. And there's nothing wrong with having affluence. There's nothing wrong with having a big bank account. All of that's, that's terrific. And that is certainly a legitimate measure of one kind of success. The other kind is more of a personal success that has the same kind of currency as the external, I am doing very well and all my friends see that. And I think when we allow ourselves to appreciate the currency that's that's disconnected from that external success, the external, I own the car kind of success, then there's there's more value to to life, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um... There's some quote that I can't quite remember about like trying to run the rat race, you know, but at the end of it, you're still a rat. How you achieve a goal matters just as much as as what you achieve. If you flay yourself to create something, was that really worth it? The idea of the rat race is kind of funny because if you actually observe mice and rats, they're yeah. not racing. They, <laughs> yeah. they don't like line up and go, let's see who can get to the finish line. They're They're more playful. I know that in New York City, the rats are taking over everything. But from the rats' point of view, they're very happy because they're living in abundance. So if you yeah. watch rats in a subway, they're not particularly concerned about predators. They're not, they have plenty of food. They can eat all the chips and the French fries or whatever falls off the platforms. And they're not racing around doing anything. Rats are actually cooperating. So when you are teaching the artist way, how do you go about your your work and for those people out there who aren't familiar with it would you give us a little bit of an overview of of your take on the artist's way which was written by julia cameron for those of you who don't know yeah. i'd love to hear that my take on what it is it's a system for really looking at those beliefs that we have and and taking um actions to shift them so not just exploring them from a mental perspective, although there is a lot of journaling um, that is very insightful, but it's also, you have homework assignment, you do things, um, and then you have that experience and you learn from that. I'm a big believer in experiential learning. So one of the things I used to do was be um, a standardized patient for hospitals to, to help train doctors how to have conversations and lead exams. And you learn by doing. 
it's not just enough to to read about it. And so I, <laughs> if we could learn what we needed to by reading about it, we'd all be, you know, gazillionaires with, with perfect relationships and like have solved world hunger. And, but I think it's actually something that, that get needs to be practiced. And so the book has morning pages where you, you, you write three pages and that's something that you do and you do it every day and, and you let whatever comes through, come through. And yeah, all the voices that are there, they get a chance to speak. And then you have artist dates where you fill the well. So if you are wanting to have output, it's important to have input. And so artist dates are a way of really filling that well. There are so many things that she invites you to do and and see how that goes. That experience teaches us that, oh, perhaps this is something we can have more of in our lives and we feel it in our bodies. So we do more of what brings us to life and we feel that in our bodies and we go, oh, okay. It, it could be safe to write that thing, even if it's not going to change the world because it's good for me. <laughs> it's bringing me to life and I have permission to voice that. And it doesn't need to be about an external acceptance or rejection. It's really about that internal permission. And, and cultivating that and feeling it, that it is safe and feeling what it is. So for many people, they've been sort of shut down to what they want, their self-expression. And so the artist's way is a really good process of cracking that nut of what do I even want to do? So busy, like just existing that I, that I don't even take the time to ask myself those questions. Yeah. And I've noticed having taught artist ways like i said since 1996 was the first class i taught in portland oregon and it was funny julia cameron and i were doing the artist way creativity camps and she said well hey you should teach a 12-week course and i said well i i don't i don't know how to teach a 12-week course you you know how to teach the course she said well you you did the camp you that's enough you should just go do it and i was yeah. like well okay so i trooped off to portland and I put an ad in the Oregonian, the paper, and the night of the class at this church called the Old Church, which is a really an event center. It's not a church anymore. It's yeah. still there. Uh, 43, 43 people walked through the door. Hmm. And and I was, I was a tad, I have to confess, a bit overwhelmed because I'd never done this before. And, hmm. you know, the only experience I had, I had lots of experience teaching. But I didn't have that much, and I've been teaching poetry and performance and traveling around being a performance poet. So, so it wasn't like I was unaccustomed to 43 people, but I didn't quite know what to do with it. And yeah. I had to draw on whatever experiences I had had in, in the camps, which were hardly 12-week courses. They were more camps, which was more concentrated. But I started then, you know, learning how to how to in, engage it. And what I discovered, and you've discovered this too, is the end of the artist way. Julia says, well, go back and do it again. Mm -hmm. You know, go back and start over. You're not finished. This is 12 weeks. It's just part of a lifetime. Go back, do it again, do it again. And over the years, I've probably taught 50, 60 artist way classes. Have I learned that much? Probably. Did I learn it from myself? No, I learned it from the people around me. And what I've discovered, if the artist way teaches us anything, shows us 
eventually we will get bored with our excuses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. well, well, what's the, these these excuses that we've had all along actually have very little validity. And all of those exercises in the artist way, the tasks in the back, and some people do all of them and some people do sample them the first time through, they go back and do sample more the second time through. Right. There's there's a point, and you can speak to this as well from an acting point of view. There is a point when you do the work and you practice it and you finally get it up to speed, you just relax and go, this is, this is done. And I think that's part of the system that the artist way offers. You start out with these little simple exercises and you answer all these questions, but they trigger inside of your head all of this imaginative work. And pretty soon it just becomes so delightful that you wonder why you haven't been doing it all along. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very true. And I think that one of the reasons I'm interested in teaching it as a class is having other people observe that in each other. So I'd done the artist's way on my own and it, and it was very useful, but it's hard to stick with it. It's hard to see any progress that you're making sometimes. And by witnessing what someone else is going through and having them reflect back to you what they're seeing in you, it really deepens that experience. That's one of the things that I'm especially interested in. I think it's very useful on its own. And I think as a group, you can create a lot of change and connection that is is really long lasting. But I know a number of people who have gone through the Artist Way classes that I've taught and people that have done other Artist Way classes and teachers who have taught it because there's just hundreds and hundreds of people doing this all over the country. I mean, yeah. you and I are not alone here, but the report is the same. Oh my gosh, I got together with this group of people and we did this thing for 12 weeks. I don't know quite what happened, but I feel pretty good about this little picture I drew. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it might not be, it might be exactly, it might be very close to the same picture they drew 12 weeks earlier that they felt awful about. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. 12 weeks later, they're still drawing more or less the same thing, but they're like, you know, that's not so bad. Yeah. And that's a huge shift. That is absolutely worth celebrating that permission just to make something and have a little bit of wiggle room from the claws of the, the critic. <laughs> I also like to lead these joy facilitation groups. And part of what I love about it is I come from a theater background where, so I am very playful. Play helps us regulate our nervous system. It invites new ideas. Your brain is like, oh, we're playing now. Great. We can do this. Joy facilitation is a way of meeting that heavy stuff in life with a playful spirit. When someone has the courage in a group to be playing an improv game and say, you're tossing something into the room that is overwhelming you. And you're like, I feel completely overwhelmed and saddened by the state of the planet right now. And you toss that in, you know, as like an imaginary ball, right? Or you play with it in these ways. It creates such a sense of relief. And I think that the same thing happens with the artist's way. When someone says, I couldn't go on my date. It got swallowed up and I'm so angry at myself for that. And then someone else says, someone else hears that and is like, yes, <laughs> the same thing happened to me or almost happened to me. And it's really magical to have those kinds of experiences. For people who struggle with needing to be perfect or perfectionism, 
it's just really healing to be in a space where vulnerability is happening. And when you think of perfectionism, it's an impossible proposition. We have already achieved perfection. It, it is the easiest of all the goals to achieve because we exist. And we exist in a context that has a universal, infinite perfection that we don't even have to bother with. And because we have inherited perfection, the beauty of life is perfect, really. We can then be as messy as we want to be, because no matter how hard we work, we will never be able to destroy the perfection that we exist in, nor will we be able to eliminate the creativity we were born with. Right. I, I think that that's why I'm really passionate about teaching something like The Artist's Way, because that inner voice that wants to sing a song or make a book, that voice, it's not a mistake. It's, it's not an accident. By allowing it to exist, that's what I really love about The Artist's Way. It's, it's more like allowing it to exist rather than having to create it out of nothing. It's following those threads that are already there and being able to say yes to them over and over again. Life is built on millions and millions of mistakes. And what we have done from a language point of view is we have named them in the wrong way. By rethinking how we relate to this notion of mistakes. Yeah. And again, the mistakes are the building blocks for everything that we need to do to make us who we are. And we are not a mistake, but yeah. we are built on what we would name as mistakes. And I, I mean, in terms of giving people a, like a, a felt sense of this, some of the games I like to play include um, mistakes, ta-da. <laughs> so we stand in a circle and someone says a, a mistake that they have made and we all cheer them for being on the other side of it. And it's just such a beautiful celebratory way of, of approaching it. Or another game where you, it's called get it wrong. And I, I would ask you a question, you know, what color is the sky? And your only job is to get it wrong. So you're, that's you're easy to it. do. Right, right. <laughs> um, and people laugh and they love it. And it starts to um, break up that ice of like, I have to get it right because I have to get it right comes from I'm not safe unless I get it right. I'm going to lose love and belonging and connection um, unless I get it right. And so creating that sense of internal safety is really important in moving through that. I, I have to get it right. And it's funny. I know a fair number of professional musicians and, you know, I've been in the arts a long time. So I know a good number of people as you probably do too. And some of the very fluid, fluent prose will create mistakes in the work just to entertain themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you can start to embrace mistakes. I mean, I, I do improv sometimes, which is the ultimate exercise in needing to say yes to everything that's happening on stage. There are no mistakes. Whatever happens on stage, you just say yes to it and you keep moving forward. And it's very good practice for someone like me who, who wants to get everything right. It's like, okay, we're dancing this dance together and 
if I say something unexpected or you say something unexpected, our, our job is to just keep keep saying yes to it. So you mentioned to me in an email that you have a poets in your life that give you oxygen, that give you joy, that give you wonder. And also this idea of joy. How do you connect joy to poetry? And when you facilitate joy, you facilitate the emergence of it. And then once it comes out, then you facilitate the the playfulness of it. So it's like lots of different nuanced levels of joy coming out. Poets and joy and and oxygen tell us the main philosophy to my joy facilitation is from Khalil Gibran your joy is your sorrow unmasked and this idea that there really isn't separation between your joy and your sorrow and so when you are able to touch in on that sorrow you create room for joy when you shut yourself off you're living in this narrow bandwidth <laughs> where you can't experience the sorrow and you really don't have access to the joy. And I would say in terms of poets, in a very dark place, I was reading Keep Moving by Maggie Smith. It's a beautiful book that she wrote in the midst of a divorce and just felt her whole world coming apart. And every day she wrote a note to herself. It really spoke to me. And I think it's spoken to lots of people who are in the midst of change and grief and figuring out how to move through it. And literally just keep moving instead of becoming immobilized. That's a book that in my very dark times really helps. And I also think Consolations by David White. It's so beautiful. There's a passage on heartbreak. We try so hard to avoid heartbreak in our lives, but actually there is no life that escapes heartbreak because of the way the world is. We love things and then we lose them and it creates a certain amount of heartbreak. And so spending your life like trying to silo yourself from heartbreak, it's understandable, but it keeps you from experiencing life. Well, there's a line that I've often quoted on this show from Charles Wright, and and I, I say it all the time. I love to say it. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had in solitude? spontaneously and with great joy. What I have discovered with poetry, it's an endless well. One of the things I like about the the poets, and David White is a very good poet. He He's Irish. What do you expect? Every <laughs> All Irish, they're all poets. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> Must be the island. Maybe yeah. the leprechauns cast a spell on all those people. I don't know. But uh, he does he does a great job with the with the work that that he does. But it is the it is the kind of material that just keeps on giving. And what I like about it, I don't have to do all of the thinking. Mm-hmm. I'll let David White do the thinking. I'm a poet. I can write verse, and I do thinking myself. I, I imagine you write as well, uh, mm-hmm. as you've already said. So we do think and we do put something on the page that then hopefully has some meaning for somebody else the poems that the the great poets have written i'm I'm thinking of the fish by elizabeth bishop Mm. you know the the story goes i am out on the boat i catch this big fish the prize fish hold the thing up and look at it and it's a million years old ancient fish been around forever i'm the one that can determine whether this fish lives or dies and I admire it and I want to eat it and I'm going to do all these things with it. And then suddenly I realize that there's only one choice here. 
the, the last bit of the poem goes, rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. Hmm. And the fish goes again. And so you can go through that poem a million times. And every time you go through it, you feel like you have been released mm-hmm. because you're the fish. She mm-hmm. caught you and, and the poem catches you. And when you're like, wow, this poem caught me, this poem hooked me. And then the poem let me go. I yeah. am the fish. I am the old wise fish with the hooks in my mouth. Yeah. 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 I mean, poetry really is a way of like, seeing our lives <laughs> When we deprive ourselves of that or call it frivolous, we're really doing a disservice to our our humanity. <laughs> what are we living for? I think that's one of the things that that poetry does is re- redirect us back to that question of what are we living for? We're so busy trying to exist. What is it that we're living for? Coming back to that helps us then guide our actions. When you might be in pain asking that question, what you, what you come back to is kindness. You you come back to those moments that brought brought you breath, and you slow down. It's in that moment when you and a friend connect. It's in that moment when you are looking up at the sky. Here I am in my being, and I'm in right relationship with those around me, and I can feel it and sense it. And I, I don't necessarily need to have like a logical understanding of that. Does that does that make sense? Well, that makes perfect sense because we don't need a logical understanding for it at all. Um, we're getting close to the top of our time together, yeah. top of the hour. And so before we, we go, if people would like to know more about your work and how they could connect with you, tell us how that would work. I have the many hats that I wear, the the joy facilitation, the artist's way, the creativity coaching. That's all at bluetomato.art. And you can always email me at Siobhan, S-I-O-B-H-A-N, at bluetomato.art. It's interesting. So people sometimes ask me where blue tomato comes from. <laughs> There's a song by a band called Pink Martini. And it's called Hang On Little Tomato. And it's a beautiful song about resilience. And just really when things feel dark, you just hang on. So for me, that's always been a very special symbol. And then blue, it's that unexpected. Who thinks of a blue tomato? But I actually have seen blue tomatoes since I created the company. Well, they're they're hybrid tomatoes. They do come sometimes with the blue tent. I think is that yeah. Is that right? I had, yes. I had no idea when I named it that that they actually existed. But then I actually saw them in Asheville. I was at a I was at a breakfast place and I went, "What? They exist in the, in the flesh?" Yeah, the people collect hybrid seeds that pass down from generation to generation, and you will find that those blue tomatoes but i I was thinking you know people say well once in a blue moon you know you could go like well once in a blue tomato (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i really i really enjoy being a being a blue tomato and so if people want to find me there that would be lovely i i really love creating spaces for vulnerability creating spaces where people can play creating spaces where people can do more of what brings them to life since i have had the gift of that given to me time and time again. And it feels very good to, to share that gift with, with others. 
So you're telling us if we want to be blue tomatoes, all we have to do is come to bluetomato.art and right. you will will facilitate not only joy and creativity, yeah. but you'll facilitate the essence of our blue tomatoness. Yes, yes. Well, one question I ask on my website is what color is your tomato? So we'll get together, we'll figure out what color your tomato is, and <laughs> we'll have fun doing it. Even if it even if what comes out is is a little bit heavy because I just, I think we're all besieged right now. And so creating some bandwidth feels very important to me. Like I, this, work, this work feels very important to me to listen in and get quiet because the noise is just so very noisy right now. And, and also too, as we, just as we close, people who choose to do this work, whomever shows up, it's a form of creative leadership. Once you engage in this process, then you set an example for other people. And that's what helps smooth some of the noises in the world, if you will. Yeah. 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 By being able to say, this is where I'm choosing to put my attention. I'm choosing to put my attention on that which generates life. And I'm allowing other people to join me in that process. Yeah. You have some agency, even if it doesn't feel like it. Well, Siobhan, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for <laughs> joining me in this lively, hop around, joyous conversation. Yes, yes, it's been wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes our conversation with Siobhan Daughtery. Siobhan mentioned her website, bluetomato.art, and told us that the name was inspired by a song, Hang On Little Tomato, by the band Pink Martini. And guess what? The music you hear under my voice is the beginning of that song. So let's take a listen. Hang On Little Tomato. Here's a little song that's full of hope and optimism. It's called Hang On Little Tomato. It's based on an advertisement for Hunt's Ketchup from an October 16th, 1964 issue of Life magazine. Yes. There's this little green tomato clinging to the vine and the narrator says, hang on, little tomato. Stay on the vine until you're fat and juicy. Then we will pluck you and boil you in secret bubbling spices turn you into ketchup, and if you're lucky, some smart hamburger may then team up with you. So this is a song of hope.
So now you know where Siobhan got her inspiration for her website, bluetomato.art. It just proves that you never know where something will pop in your imagination that will give you some insight to add to your own story. So I love the question, are you a blue tomato? Are you a green tomato? Are you a multicolored tomato? Are you a large, juicy tomato? Or a small, hybrid tomato? descended from some great seed tradition that started in the ancient times. So whatever color your tomato happens to be, I think hang on little tomato is good advice for all of us. And since we have a little bit of a song theme going on before the top of the hour, here's my good friend Big John Cher singing a song you probably know some of the words to. Love me tender, love me true. Hey little tomato, how about that? Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. You have made my life complete, and I love you so. Love me tender, love me true.
Big John Shearer singing Love Me Tender, Love Me True. And now let's just close it out with a song from Walter Parks, who provides us with our theme song. This is a song about New Mexico. You might have heard it before. If not, it might sound familiar to you when you do hear it, which is right now. She just wants to know you're there And she's pining for affection While she keeps you unaware She says she'll never give her heart away and cut off all her hair You can see through what the tough girls see In her eyes as she lay there She says New Mexico Is where she's gotta go Cause she gonna die in Carolina No sons or daughters, but she got healing waters, and she's gotta let them flow in New Mexico. She taught you how to love her, she brought you to that you can love her She don't want to set you free She says 
Says her family thinks she's crazy But her lovers know the truth She does what everyone's afraid of Walter Parks singing about going out west and disappearing. New Mexico, land of enchantment. So thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I do appreciate it. And if you are one of those little blue tomatoes out there, hey, good luck on your blue tomato journey or whatever color you are in the world of grand tomatoes. You've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I do appreciate it, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in any more of Walter's music, thank you, Big John Sharer, for for being my friend and offering your music so I can use it now and then on the show. I appreciate that as well. Hats off to you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM in Asheville, and Robin Collier for spending all that time putting Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI, together in Taos. I appreciate all of that. And if you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com, good place to look. And every Saturday morning, I gather with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, with a group of writers, and we spend an hour working on writing. We spend about 10 minutes on the page and maybe 10 minutes more reading it and an hour total. ImaginativeStorm.com is where you can find that workshop every every Saturday, noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's always available. Doors always open. There is never a charge. ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to learn more about that. So once again, thank you ever so much for tuning in. I do appreciate it. And guess what? I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.